All right, psychology nerds, welcome to Psychology and Stuff, the podcast out of Phoenix Studios at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay. A few weeks ago, we teamed up for a live episode at the Brown County Library with one of our sibling podcasts, Serious Fun, hosted by Dr. Brian Carr, for an episode we're calling Supervillains on the Couch. It was a super fun episode with a great audience, and we'll bring you that episode in a minute. But first, I want to remind you how to get involved in the Psych and Stuff conversation. We're on Facebook and Twitter, and you can find us by searching for Psychology and Stuff. Those are good places to learn more about the show, psychology in general, and share ideas for future shows. We take requests. And with that, here's our episode on the psychology of supervillains from the Brown County Library. Uh, I have some prepared remarks I'd like to read, if that's Ooh. okay. Uh, Comic-Con is a time to celebrate our heroes, how they inspire us to dream, to achieve greatness, to push to just that much harder, to go the extra mile, to think that spandex is appropriate attire to wear in public. But to be a great hero, you need a great villain. But what makes a great villain? And psychologically speaking, are some of these baddies really so bad? That's what we're here to find out. Hello, welcome to another fan schmabulous Phoenix Studios event. Uh, this is another crossover. We did this last year, and uh, if comic, the comics industry has taught us nothing else. If you do it once, just keep doing it again and again and again until eventually <laughs> people stop buying it. Um, <laughs> representing Serious Fun, the show where popular culture and regular culture intersect. It's me, the uncanny Dr. Brian Carr, uh, yes. representing our sister show, Psych and Stuff. We have the astonishing Dr. Ryan Martin. Ooh, and astonishing. The, and the extraordinary you. Dean Chuck Ryback, here once again to protect a podcasting world that hates and fears. Now that seems harsh. Tolerates and looks at us askance. We have a little business to take care of before we get started. First, by sending a special thanks to Stitcher, so we can all give a, a special thank you, Stitcher. Thank you, Stitcher. All right, and now that's out, that's out of the way, let's talk about what we're here to talk about, the bad guys. In this episode, we're putting supervillains on the couch, so to speak, analyzing what makes them tick, why we find them so compelling, and what we can learn or maybe should try to avoid from comic book notions of villainy and mental health in the real world. Uh, we've got a very busy appointment book today, so we're going to actually run down some patients real quick here, and uh, then we'll kind of like come back and see what we learned at the end. Uh, and we're starting with a man by the name of Lex Luthor. Lex Luthor, for those of you who don't know, is a billionaire industrialist, philanthropist, and a brilliant scientist who's a pillar of metropolis society till one day an alien from Krypton arrives. The guy's handsome, he can fly, he can do things normal humans can't. He's good, he's selfless and kind, and all of a sudden Lex's hard work and everything he's built is secondary to this flying interloper. So he turns rogue, hating and mistrusting Superman and seeing Superman's very existence as a rejection of Lex's own accomplishments and also as a potential threat to humanity. Lex uses his intellect and resources to cast himself in opposition to the man of steel and everything he stands for. So doctors... Mm -hmm. I ask you, does Lex have a complex? When I first read your <clears throat> remarks in the beginning, I misread it and thought that Lex Luthor could fly on his own. And no, I made I, the same mistake. But but I had no idea. He's got to have yeah. a suit to do it. Okay. Right. okay. I have a lot of affection for Lex Luthor, if I, if I can say that. Mm -hmm. um, mostly because he reminds me of one of my favorite mythological figures, who is Prometheus. Mm -hmm. um, and like what it means to stand up and fight what is essentially a god mm -hmm. and to be pitted against that and to be hopeless in that sense. So does he have a complex? Was that your question? Yes. I'm totally not the doctor to be able to say this. However, I think he has a Prometheus complex. Okay. So, and do you think that he's maybe justified in those feelings? It depends on what part of the process that sure. we're in. So I think from the beginning, I would say yes, he is kind of justified in that. Prometheus is justified in, in what he does. And there is something endearing about stories of lesser beings that want to kill their masters, if I, if I can just throw that out there. Um, but then it, he normally goes off the rails, right, mm -hmm. if I can say that. And um, if I could jump from references that here also reminds me a lot of heroes that 
rely on intellect to defeat strength. If I could go to Sherlock Holmes in that way, or even if you read Edgar Allan Poe, Ru uh, Murder in the Rue Morgue, um, I won't spoil it and say that it has anything at all to do with orangutans, but it totally does. Um, <laughs> and it's really this can reason and logic and sort of the enlightenment mind defeat sheer strength. Mm -hmm. um, and he seems to be trying to prove that over and over again, and I'm just going to assume that he loses more than he wins. Generally speaking, yes. All right. Though there are some stories <laughs> where he does answered. end up winning in the end. Superman Red Sun jumps out to me, mm -hmm. uh, where he basically lives to be like a thousand plus years old and mm -hmm. um, brings the world into uh, a great new age just to stick it to mm -hmm. Superman. Um, uh, I think there's something to what he's after, though, in that we try to take on the world's larger problems with intellect, that mm -hmm. you can just solve them alone by intellect rather than sheer force. Mm -hmm. um, and I could, I could name names where that goes awry, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, like, you know who reminds me of Lex Luthor is Bill Gates. Mm -hmm. And so... Um, <laughs> Especially back in the 90s. Right, like... A, applying to I'm going to solve all of education's problems not because I'm super wealthy but because I'm smarter than you are and I'm going to fix all this um, and it's just not going to work um, so I admire Lex Luthor at the start but after that not so much <laughs> let me ask the psychologist at the table mm -hmm. uh, Dr. Martin how does psychology deal with this concept of envy and do you think that uh, this can actually help to explain some of Lex's Prometheus complex so to speak super envy yeah so I, I think that when I think of Lex Luthor, I think of um, narcissistic injury, right? So as you described him there, here's this character that, you know, by, by your description is arrogant, you know, pretty cocky, thinks he's great, and then something, someone comes in who, who is better than him. And the consequence of that is that it, it's, a, it's a shot at his ego, right? And he reacts the way a lot of narcissistic or arrogant people res respond and that is by, you know, doubling down on all of the things that, that he, he believed in about himself, you know? And so it's like, well, look, I'm so, so uh, hurt mm -hmm. by this failure, but I'm not going to admit that. I'm just going to double down on all the ways that I'm great and, tell, and continue and continue and continue to try and achieve this. And this is, um, this is something a lot of narcissistic people do when they experience a failure. Mm -hmm is to uh, essentially sort of double down on that, on all of those perspectives. And you see it time and time again, right? And, and so my knowledge of Lex Luthor comes from a whole bunch of movies more so than anything else. And in the movies, you know, it's, it's one plan after another, each one failing. Um, and then him continuing to believe, though, that he is the greatest and most brilliant mind in all of these different ways. So, that's, so there's a bit of narcissism, there's a bit of envy, there's a bit of everything, um, but uh, let me ask you guys a question, so both of you. Do you think that we could say Lex Luthor might actually be a hero if he could just kind of get out of his own way and just accept that Superman is probably more naturally apt to be his friend than his enemy? No. <laughs> could you elaborate? <laughs> Maybe. Um, I, I think it connects to what Ryan was just saying about narcissism, is that I don't think... Lex Luthor could ever get past the belief that Superman doesn't deserve to be better than he is. He was born on another planet. Mm -hmm. And you can either say, yeah, he was born on another planet. He is an alien. Therefore, he is different than you. Or there is some kind of super meritocracy there <laughs> that he is going, that he doesn't deserve to mm -hmm. be better. Um, I guess my 
reaction to that, to your question, would be, can you name me, can you give me an example of someone who's gotten out of their own way <laughs> on the villain side and then became better? There was actually an instance. I knew that you'd answer right away. <laughs> I knew this, this. This is literally my area of expertise. Um, I knew The this. Riddler actually did, uh, for a while, become a crime fighter uh, and gave up villainy. But it wasn't so much that he got out of his own way. It's just he's like, I'm so, I'm so smart and so good at this. Um, I might as well just do this thing instead mm -hmm. and just kind of show that I'm better than Batman. Um, so in a way, he kind of got out of the sort of like just trying to foil Batman and just sort of put his uh, energy into a more pro-social direction. But that's the only one I can think of offhand. Okay, fine. I concede the point. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but it is rare. It is absolutely rare. But, I mean, I think that like the idea behind your question is like if he could be a in some ways a different person, if he could solve his whatever psychological problem is mm -hmm. interfering in his or driving him to, to want to fight Superman... I mean, I think, yes. If he, I mean, he's obviously talented in a billion different ways, mm -hmm. and he's got a lot going for him. And so, yeah, it is this, this problem. Now, can he get past that? Probably not. I agree with, with Chuck there. Mm -hmm. If he could get past it, that would be great for him, right? I mean, mm -hmm. this is, he, there's a long line of people with different types of mental health problems and different types of complexes that, um, who, who continue to make bad decisions and go down this, you know, make these decisions and follow the same pattern, um, even though it's obviously doing them harm. But right. getting out of his own way would necessitate him being more like Superman, mm -hmm. who he hates more than right. anyone, right? Right. So, so screw right. that. I'm <laughs> it's not, not getting out of my own way. <laughs> All right. So uh, that's, that's the end of Lex's appointment. So, Doctor. Doctor. Nice work. Doctor. Strange. Um, we're in the front row. Uh, I know you want to do that joke, so we, we did. <laughs> um, let's go ahead to our next patient. Uh, our next patient you might have heard of. Born on the moon of Saturn, Titan, the son of Eternal's mentor, Alars, and his wife, Susan. Uh, he bore the deviance gene, did Thanos, that gave him his distinctive purple skin and wrinkly chin. Shocked by his appearance, his mom tried to kill him. That's the sort of thing that might give anyone a bit of a complex. Uh, so by his teenage years, he becomes obsessed with nihilism and death, both as a concept and as a literal embodied person in the form of a skull lady um, and a lot of other stuff happens he finds the infinity gauntlet snaps his fingers half of all life is erased da, 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 da. you saw the movie it grossed over two billion dollars you know um, this spoiler alert and for it's yeah. it's <laughs> we've we passed the six month uh, mark it's okay, okay. that's fine um, interestingly while his ultimate goal remains the same his motive varies in the MCU the Marvel Cinematic Universe he's interested in extreme form of population control for the good of the universe or so he claims in the comics he's desperate for the love and affection of death who takes the form of a skeleton lady so it's either death obsession or extreme utilitarianism but either way he seems to take it so far so uh, what does psychology uh, or philosophy have to say about something like this I need you to explain the skeleton lady more. I, you know what? I don't think there's a way I could in <laughs> okay. the time we have. But suffice to say that in the Marvel Universe, death is real, and death takes the form of a female skeletal hooded figure. Okay. Um, she also has a thing for Deadpool, as it turns out, basically because she wants what she cannot have because Deadpool cannot die. It's a whole thing. Deadpool and Thanos have a history, um, but we're getting way far af right. afield at this point. So I anyway. I mean, who doesn't have a thing for Deadpool? He's, yeah, he's, no, he's so hot right now. All right. Agreed. So uh, you know, I think there's going to be some common themes across our clients mm. today. And they are, I think, various types of personality disorders, narcissism, uh, antisocial personality disorder, which are actually very, very similar to one another. And this is another case. And I think what makes him interesting to me is that 
This is an example. People respond to hurt in very different ways, right? There are people who respond to having been hurt and they internalize that kind of pain and they deal with depression over the course of their lives. And there are people who respond to hurt by lashing out and mm -hmm. by, um, by wanting to hurt others. And, and based on the description you, you gave us here, this is, that's him, mm -hmm. right? That this is someone who, no, and I will be honest, like, the, the motivation in the movie left me wanting a little bit. It's, it's, it's not as well thought out as people seem to think it is. Yep. Yeah. And it's not as well th thought out. I, th I really like what Marvel has been doing with villains in the mm -hmm. last four or five movies. Um, but I, I did think that that one wasn't quite as strong mm -hmm. as, as some of the others. Um, but I, I do think that ultimately this is... Um, this is a, a person dealing with hurt and pain in the way people often deal with hurt and pain. And when you also add power to that, which he certainly has, um, it gives him the opportunity to lash out in, in a really extreme or many really extreme ways. And ultimately, not just power. We're talking ultimate power. The right. ability to decide literally who lives and dies, mm -hmm. uh, even if it's random. It, that's an incredible amount of power to put on anybody, let well, alone someone like this. Mm -hmm. and, and I would say even before he had the, the gauntlet, mm -hmm. he was still stronger than mm -hmm. than He was conquering most, worlds. He was right. slaughtering populations. Yeah. Right. Who isn't? I mean. Yeah. I mean. <laughs> so it's a growth industry. Yeah. It's, it's a bespoke market. <laughs> so counter theory to that is that mm -hmm. I don't know if it's a psychological condition, but I'm just going to call it fraudulence that mm -hmm. hey, to me he – He's the most disturbing. It, to me, he's just a genocidal maniac. There's nothing else to it. Mm -hmm. And he is a complete fraud that shows up in the logic of, this is why I'm doing this, overpopulation. The universe isn't overpopulated. There's almost nobody there, mm -hmm. even in the Marvel Universe. Um, <laughs> they all that, seem to be centered around New York, is right, what I've noticed. Like, but <laughs> I don't know. It, there's almost nobody there. They just there. need to build yeah, a few that. taller buildings, right. and then this problem is solved. Um, that It's a lot of, and again, I think, connects to the contemporary world and, or really history in general is showing up with a lot of justifications and logic um, cause and effect that somehow in the end always result in eliminating other people mm -hmm. right well, and there is no it, it, that's what it, it boils down to to me but and I think that I don't think that's inconsistent or I don't think we differ that much I mean I think bad people or people who do bad things at least they rationalize that those, I agree with those behaviors in <laughs> yeah. all sorts of ways right and so yeah it's just it's a person who wants to hurt people wrapping that up in a little mm -hmm. package for themselves in mm -hmm. order to make them feel better about why right and that's I think what was so interesting because you had a lot of people coming out of Infinity War saying well what if Thanos was right you know Thanos maybe didn't do anything wrong it's like it doesn't matter what the motive is it's still murder yeah. like <laughs> it doesn't matter how fair it is like this you know and, and that's I think you know you see that really kind of interesting dichotomy um, you know between him and Captain America in that film uh, where Captain America is like no lives are sacrificed at all we're better than that um, whereas Dan was like yeah lives can be sacrificed it's worth it and to me one physician's defensible the other one's not and right. I think that's the thing is that like he's a compelling villain he's a seductive villain in a lot of ways um, I've seen I've seen the tumblers um, but uh but he's also, but like part of why we start to see him as like an acceptable thing is because we see things from his perspective. The film is his hero's journey, even though he's the villain. And I think that's part of why people got confused by it. And I wouldn't say confused, but that's part of why you saw so many people kind of like kind of gravitate toward his side. It, which is weird. It is. I'm just going to say that. Um, that he, he's also, like I try to attach political motivations through mm -hmm. characters. Comics have always been great for that. Um, he's an expression of the ruling class. Mm -hmm. I mean, that, that's what he's there to deliver, that 
I would have been much more interested in that story if when he snaps his fingers that there was a 50% chance that he himself would disappear. Right. But that doesn't happen, of course. No. Because the well, wait, was there? Not I guess we don't know. Well, I think that he... <laughs> like, he oh, snaps his he fingers just beat and disappears. The so, okay, the I don't know. I, the, the, ground, the Infinity Gauntlet no doesn't come with an owner's manual, but I'm pretty <laughs> sure if you're using it, whatever... You're safe. Whatever mystical, whatever yep. thing it's doing ignores you which but maybe a, he didn't know that or maybe he did in which case it just makes him even more of a jerk i'm gonna say that it does because that's a basic expression of the ruling class mm -hmm. at that level which is i'm going to make decisions they're going to affect other people and i'm immune to them yeah period and, and it's and, gross yeah. and i'm not buying a t-shirt i think if you look at <laughs> thanos in terms of his action rather than uh what he says he's or why he says he's doing it i think that's the only real way to look at mm -hmm. it um, so are we, are we good on, on Thanos? Or? I was going to say, I was going to come dressed as Thanos. I'm glad now I didn't. Yes. That, that would have been super embarrassing. <laughs> to be fair, he's, he's a great villain, but you know what makes him a good villain doesn't make him right. A good person? Yes. You know? yeah. I'm, still, I'm still angry, but we can move on. Yeah. I, there's, there's a couple things in that movie that happened because of him that I'm still Who are still you angry with, with, Chuck? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when is You're mad problem? at your father, not <laughs> me. <laughs> it's not the quantity of the people. It's the quality, you schmuck. <laughs> okay. All right, take that, imaginary mm. character. <laughs> take that, Thanos. So our next patient is Eric Killmonger-Stevens. Uh, Killmonger has existed in the Marvel Comics universe for years, but there's no denying that Michael B. Jordan's masterful turn in this year's Black Panther film quickly became the de facto version of this character. As such, he's what we're going to focus on. Now, again, you probably saw this movie. made over $1.3 billion worldwide. Uh, but if you need a refresher, Eric Stevens, a.k.a. Njidaka, is the cousin of T'Challa, the Black Panther. Eric's dad was T'Challa's uncle. T'Challa's dad killed him for conspiring to steal the precious metal vibranium from the home of Wakanda. I realize if you haven't seen the movie, none of this makes sense. Um, Eric, growing up on the mean streets of Oakland, grows up to become a black ops soldier going by the name Killmonger. He eventually returns back to Wakanda to challenge his cousin for the throne. When he wins, he turns Wakanda's resources to arming operatives around the world to incite violence and destabilization in the name of helping the people he feels that Wakanda has left behind until ultimately he is defeated and, spoiler alert, chooses to die rather than face being locked away in a Wakandan prison. So this conversation is an interesting one, and uh, we have had a conversation about Killmonger on this show already. Back in February, we did the Black Panther episode. I encourage you to go back to that. Ryan was on that. Um, I was uh, not invited. You were not. Yes. <laughs> yeah. You were there in spirit, Chuck. You're always yeah. there in spirit. Um, but what could we add uh, if approaching him from this psychological thing? You know, uh, Ryan, you're an anger researcher. Do you mm -hmm. think he's an angry character? And is that anger, in fact, justified? Yes and yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, he's so he is my favorite of the villains. This is what I mean when I say I think Marvel has done a really nice job with their villains as of late. I think he, and I actually think Vulture, another one that we, I don't know if we have time for we'll, him. We'll come back to him a little bit later. Okay. Um, but, I mean, I think ultimately, yeah, like there is a, there is a great deal. I mean, he's another one who, who's, the basics are wrapped up in hurt and anger and, and from things that happened early on in his life, but not just early on in his life. You know, a path that was not afforded to him, essentially, but that he's always essentially known about. And, and I think he's, there's a whole lot of anger there. And I think a lot of, one of the things I think that makes that character in that movie so compelling is that I do think he is, he's got a point. Uh, much of what he's upset about, much of what he is angry about is absolutely justified. Oh, you want me to jump in? Yeah. Here? All right, I'll do that. Um, he is also my favorite villain. Can I say that? Yes. And I'm totally on board with him and sympathetic in many ways. Um, I, uh, when I was in graduate school, um, one of my 
Folk is foci. Foci. And foci is plural. Yeah. That's actually a supervillain as well. Yeah. <laughs> um, it was uh, African American literature, and for me, one of the most important American intellectuals there's ever been is W. E. B. Du Bois, if you know that name, and the double consciousness, and that's what Killmonger represents in some ways. And so, the double consciousness, the short version of it, is that if you were uh, a black American at that time, that you could simultaneously see yourself in blackness and outside of it. And I see Killmonger being the same way, just as being Wakandan and not Wakandan mm-hmm. at mm-hmm. the same time. And it makes him utterly sympathetic while calling into question contemporary issues like what are geopolitical responsibilities right. and um, do those extend beyond class or economic interests, the interests of justice and so forth. But he's entirely sympathetic right. for that reason. What I think interesting is interesting about his character is that um, th- there's a couple things that come out of his relationship with T'Challa in the film. Um, the first is that, number one, he ultimately wins, not physically, but he does change T'Challa's right. entire perspective on Wakanda, its role, um, the legacy that he has taken over, and ultimately um, the uh, sort of argument about what do we owe to each other, and specifically what does Wakanda owe to the people that did not have the benefit of being born within Wakanda's borders and were subject to slavery and poverty and that sort of thing as a result of these geopolitical forces. Um, And two, I think it does also beg the question of, okay, so let's assume that Wakanda exists, an enclave, a, a place that has been untouched by colonialism, a place that has been allowed to prosper and thrive. What does that, what would that country owe to you know, if, if it did exist in the real world, would we be would we feel as sympathetic toward it um, if it did not make the effort to help and improve the station of uh, black individuals around the world? To me, that's one of the things that makes, again, this the movie so good is that mm-hmm. the, it's ultimately about privilege mm-hmm. and that about being able to uh, essentially ignore suffering across the, the globe um, and, and to be able to do that from a safe place, you know, and, and, and so I, I mean, to me, I think that's one of the things that made that storyline so compelling. And I, I don't know if, I, I don't know if I'm on board with the word, what do they owe? Yeah. Um, but I'm just thinking that like sort of philosophical question, like what do we owe to each other? Yeah, that kind of thing. Yeah. Right. But I think there's something about like, what is our responsibility, I guess, in those situations, those of us in privilege, how, how and what should we behave in the uh, in the world? Well, they probably owe not to completely hide right, right behind mist and clouds and all of that. Even though that itself was justified, arguably, because mm-hmm. uh, mm-hmm. they'd seen what was happening yeah. outside the borders. But, but even on the individual level, he he's somebody who, un- unlike the other characters we've talked about so far, he's not free. Mm-hmm. Like he's looking for a personal freedom. When you're a soldier, he was a soldier in the military. He, he's following. He's working for other people in that instance and following the orders of a larger strategy, whereas the others are not. And mm-hmm. so he, I see him as somebody who wants freedom for himself and recognizes that beyond the individual level, but also on a national level. And okay. that's interesting mm-hmm. to me. So we're, uh, we're, there's, there's, so there's nothing wrong with Killmonger at all. I won't say no, I, yeah. I agree with his methods. Right. I, but, but, I think that's But fair. psychologically, philosophically, he's yeah. arguably justified, or at least you can see where I he's think, coming from. And I also think he's a, he is in many ways a product of his life experiences, right. too. And, you know, I think the – I can't remember the name of the character, but who talks about essentially he's been trained mm-hmm. for this, you know, and that, right. that, mm-hmm. um, and that this is much of – so much of what he's doing is essentially what he – 
what he learned. And that's one of the sort the interesting thing is that like almost kind of the uh, um, white colonialism trained him, and he's turning what he learned against right. like uh, against it effectively in the end. But um, even if you don't agree that with the methods, I, you can still analyze who has a better argument right. to right. to behave that way. And he by far has yeah. the better. He's argument. very sympathetic. I, I mean, mm-hmm. I'm thinking a lot about people like Malcolm X or Marcus Garvey mm-hmm. and arguments for how to push back oppression in some way, that at least that argument is, a, is there. Right. Mm-hmm. So let's go ahead and change um, uh, universes once again. Uh, I want to talk about this guy. Uh, this guy, uh, his name is Harvey Dent. You might know him as Two-Face. He was the promising young attorney, district attorney for Gotham City, pledging to cre- clean up its streets of crime, and he was doing pretty good of it. He was bringing down the mob until one day mobster Sal Maroney throws acid in his face, hideously scarring one side of it. The pain and stress caused the mental anguish and illness Dent had suppressed for years as a result of abuse by his father, uh, including bipolar disorder and schizophrenia, and so he becomes obsessed with duality and choice, eventually getting to the point where he's incapable of making a choice on his own, flipping a coin to do all of this for him. Now, if you might have seen the Christopher Nolan version, it sort of changes this. Dent is pushed to madness after a sadistic mind game by the Joker, leaves his fiance dead and uh, Dent is hideously disfigured. But eventually his split personality becomes a stronger part of it to the uh, to a point in, this, in one of uh, Scott Snyder's runs on the character where Batman drives Dent on a cross-country road trip to find a cure um, only to be beset by the fact that somebody's put out a bounty on Batman's head only to find out that it was in fact Harvey Dent himself. The, two, uh, the two-faced part of his personality did not want to be cured and had hired all the villains, all the townspeople, anybody who could stop Batman. He was willing to paid to not have this cure happen. It's a great series if you, uh, if you get the chance. Um, but uh, what's interesting about uh, Two-Face, and part of why I put him on this list, is that he's essentially obviously a villain about duality uh, and literally a split personality. If you look at the design of the character, he is split straight down the middle. Um, but also, as the author Emily Gaudette points out uh, in an article she wrote about that series, um, Scott Snyder, the author of that series, said he wrote his version of Two-Face based on his own struggles for de- with depression. And arguably, she says, you could see him as a metaphor for such. So I ask, is Two-Face a useful metaphor for talking about these issues, or is it a trivialization of mental health problems? And arguably, if we look at Batman's rogue gallery in a larger scale, um, it's very heavily themed about various mental illnesses. And so uh, they all end up in an asylum, that sort of thing. Um, is it useful to talk about it in this way? Can we find a useful phrase uh, framework in there, or should we maybe reconsider that? So uh, much of my knowledge of Two-Face comes from, well, the two movies that he's been in, right? The, the Batman 89 yes. and uh, Dark Knight. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and so uh, I'm more on board for him as a, a, a metaphor for depression than I am the others you mentioned, mm-hmm. whether it's dissociative identity disorder or borderline or schizophrenia or anything like that. And I think I, I really, really like the uh, Dark Knight portrayal because ultimately this that that's a story of um, for his for his character the arc is about loss mm-hmm. right and and all sorts of loss i mean essentially as obviously his his uh the physical loss right the loss of half of his face pretty much and and also but then the loss of his girlfriend or maybe his fiance um i mean he suffers a great deal and and again you see people reacting the way sometimes people react when they grieve and that is by lashing out right Mm -hmm. and and i think that um i think that's a really interesting especially in the immediate uh portrayal of of grief that way and about loss and and depression i'm less on board for the discussions of like 
you know, split personality mm -hmm. or what we call dissociative identity disorder, that's when I start to think we're really minimizing things. But as an expression of grief and sadness, I, I think it's right on. I know nothing about Two-Face. <laughs> <laughs> and the reason for this is I'm so distracted by the flipping coin all the time. Mm -hmm. I'm so invested in what side it comes up on that I forget yeah. everything else. Well, and, but I, I'm interested, again, like in the social connection to the profession behind the villain. And um, I, so I, I won't extend this story too long, but I once got called for jury duty and it was the only time in the city. And of course, I was put on the jury. And then, of course, I was the foreman of the jury. And there, were, there was a moment in this whole process where a judge came into the room and lawyers and they instructed us on how we had to respond to the language in order to make our decision. And I felt like my self, any self-direction I had was taken away from me. And I felt like a completely different person that no matter how I felt about something, this, there was this other side of things that I had to honor, even if they weren't me, or else I was doing something wrong. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think about when I hear you talk about this. And it's interesting the because end. he is, in a lot of ways, the manifestation of kind of the, the, the sort of the darker side of the legal system. Mm -hmm. um, because he was essentially in the position he was, because he was a district attorney, because he was kind of like trying to represent this justice, it just comes down to the fact like, well, this happened, this is arbitrary, I feel powerless, and so I'm going to just leave all this up to just random chance. Right. But again, I know nothing about Two-Face. <laughs> I, I but it makes a lot of sense. And I think it does. I think you can kind of find a connection between the idea of Two-Face as sort of this like depression. Because, you know, a common theme you hear a lot with um, folks who um, go through depression is that you never really know what kind of day it's going to be. Is it going to be a good day? Is it going to be uh, a, a bad day? And, and I think that there's something really powerful in this character. And that's why when I read that article, I'm like, okay, so now I realize that like, Two-Face is actually one of the best Batman villains because... He is, I think, more relatable and understandable than a lot of them. Um, like we could all kind of see ourselves in that position, especially if you um, do, if you have been diagnosed or if you are um, going through the, uh, this thing. In a way that the Joker. Isn't. Oh, I have thoughts on the Joker, sir. Okay. I will. I'm, I'm sorry. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Yeah, <laughs> but no, you're right. It, you're absolutely right. Yeah. Well, I think there's something to be said too about the the, the decision making and using a coin to make these major decisions, and about mm -hmm. like the the helplessness that people often feel, you know, when they are depressed or when they are grieving, like mm -hmm. the sense of things being out of their control. And so here's a character who's doing that by voluntarily giving up control of mm -hmm. major decisions, which is, I think, interesting. Yeah. So we're going to stick in the same universe and the same city. Uh, I did a poll on Twitter and uh, asked, what do you guys want to hear about? I should have known. Um... So I want to talk about these two, but I really specifically want to talk about Harley. Here's, here's why. Um, so the Joker is often considered the greatest Batman villain. Um, here's, here's my problem. He's one of my least favorite Batman villains, uh, and this is why. He has no real motives or background to make him interesting. You have five pages of He is interesting only because he is a foil for Batman. Take him out of that context, he loses a lot. He's also interesting only when he's shown to be a self-aggrandizing liar, like in The Dark Knight. Now, a lot of people took him at his word, saying, oh, he's an agent of chaos. How can you be an agent of chaos, my dude, when you have set up an interweaving complex plot involving two victims tied to explosives in two different parts of Gotham, wholly dependent on your assumptions of what the concerned individuals will do? You have rigged up two boats with explosives, and you know just the wiring alone is difficult. As a social experiment, you have engineered a bank heist in which every accomplice kills the other until you are the only one left standing at what point, sir? Are you an agent of chaos? You are literally more put together than the guy this movie is named after. Now, let's talk about Dr. Harleen Quinzel. <laughs> I want to hear more about the wiring. You say the wiring. How did he do it? <laughs> 
I know that okay. you researched this, didn't you? Like, you <laughs> I, took a class. I, I, it's a great movie, <laughs> but like, I the only way to see that character is that he's a filthy liar the entire time. He is basically the inverse of Batman. He's just as planned, just as put together, just, you know. He's Thanos and Gotham. He, a little bit, yeah. yeah. Um, so Dr. Harleen Quinzel, or, a.k.a. Harley Quinn, is once a psychiatrist assigned to one particularly patient at Arkham Asylum, a strange clown-faced gentleman. Over the course of treatment, she falls in love with old painty face and eventually becomes the Joker's criminal accomplice and lover. He generally sees her either as an amusement or an annoyance. Depending on the circumstance, he regularly insults her, mistreats her, abuses her, etc. Yet, um, uh, she has become a wildly popular character, a prominent fixture in the Batman rogues gallery, even as the Batman has some sympathy for her, too. Eventually, in more recent continuity, she's had a falling out with the Joker. She has broken away with him, including one very satisfying scene where she literally beats the tar out of him in a cell at Arkham Asylum as he tries to go re- as she tries to go rescue her current boyfriend. Uh, that deeply satisfying moment was almost immediately undone by the big-budget film Suicide Squad's romanticization, romanticization of their abusive relationship, which is one of many reasons that movie is hot walk and garbage. Um, <laughs> What I find interesting about Harley, though, is that she's both a really good way to examine the toxicity of the Joker's self-proclaimed chaotic nature, but also an inherently more interesting and sympathetic character. She's fundamentally defined by abuse and trauma, but eventually becomes a character in her own right that still serves in that cool anti-hero role with an occasionally fleeting grip on sanity. In many ways, I kind of see her as a funhouse mirror version of Jessica Jones, Um, someone who's not trying to sort of cope with trauma, but is sort of just like defined by it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And I'm not sure, that idea is not fully formed, so feel free to challenge it, but... Um, what do you guys think? Well, since she's a psychiatrist, I blame Ryan yeah. for this. And but my bad. The the short version, and I, I don't. I've only really read Harley Quinn in one arc, which is Tom King's Batman. If anybody's been reading Tom King's Batman, it's amazing. Um, but he recog- the short the short version without spoiling, well, actually spoiling, is that he recognizes something good in her mm-hmm. and positions her appropriately so that when the time comes, she's going to be the one that because of this good thing in her solves a major, major problem. Mm-hmm. And I, I find that to be, you could not do the same thing with the Joker mm-hmm. um, because he ruins everything. Yes, by Every, definition, he is a ruiner. Right, he, can't, he doesn't even wash his hands. Right, and so gross. It's disgusting. Yeah, um, one of many reasons he's a supervillain. But it, as a psychiatrist, you know, I'm interested in the, how these figures stand for the bodies of knowledge that they come from. And so right. academics plays a big role in comic books mm-hmm. and especially on the villain side of things they're all doctor something doctor which means something they went to school we got doctor um, octopus doctor doom right. doctor get a phd destroy the world and yeah. <laughs> i'm confused by that in a number of ways but i think there's something about the you know again with lex luthor with intelligence or sherlock holmes even like the rational method so here a way of thinking about the mind in mm-hmm. psychology and dr martin can say more about this is currently under fire for a lot of recent revelations about how certain studies were done and Mm -hmm. how that method was applied that um, I'm wondering if she's a larger critique of the faults of system of knowledge Mm -hmm. in some way. But Uh, I'll stop talking now. So I need to know more about her backstory Uh pre-Joker in her life. She's a psychiatrist, and that's the bulk of what we know about her. Um, There have been some stories that have gone to a little bit, but like her story and and kind of role in all of this starts primarily when she's assigned to him. But she's not a nuclear anything? No, she is just a psychiatrist. Okay, for sure. Not just a psychiatrist. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But she she is not like Dr. Doom (laughs) dabbling in dark arts and nuclear science or something like that. She's a nuclear psychologist. A nuclear psychologist. Okay. Okay. 
And the reason I ask, because it is interesting that we're talking about this character, and we have, she has very little backstory pre the Joker, yeah. it sounds like. And so, again, to your point about her essentially being defined by her relationship with him is, mm-hmm. is prevalent here still. I'm interested, Chuck, in the, in the notion of her as a, uh, uh, as a critique on, on psychology or, or psychiatry in this mm-hmm. instance. But I also, I mean, I, I think what I, my familiarity with her is actually a lot of it is through students who point out how often, uh, students of mine, that is, who point out how often uh, or often that she is a, um, and that this is an abuse story, yes. right? And that she is a, uh, an abuse victim. Right. And I think that that is an intriguing uh, way of thinking about her and thinking about um, the character as a, um, and it is interesting because how many people seem to appreciate their romantic relationship as well, well right? It seems misunderstood. Just, it's not just fans. DC themselves promotes this every year around Valentine's Day. They bring out the Joker and Harley merchandise and the comics, and I just die a little inside because I'm like, by your own stories, you are really misrepresenting who these characters are. Um, to a really, frankly, maybe poisonous degree. Like, That's mm-hmm. super troubling. It I is. didn't know that. Yeah, um, yeah. I mean, I, I think there is a. I mean, I think there is a really interesting. It's not a metaphor. Just the the domestic violence story and, and abuse victim story mm-hmm. is interesting because it does lend itself to, to again, s- similar to what we said about Two Face being a, a story of depression. I mean. Mm-hmm a way of talking about domestic violence and about abuse to a wider audience. And I think that's important to talk about the reasons why, why men abuse. Um, uh, This is a question that I I often hate because it feels inherently victim blaming, but why uh, abuse victims don't leave. I mean, I think those are important questions that that the story can unpack for people Mm -hmm. a little bit. I'm glad you bring up Jessica Jones too. Mm -hmm. And so I feel the same way about that. Having read the comic, but the Netflix series itself, uh, start to finish, is, for my money, one of the best stories about domestic violence ever to hit right. television. Well, we're going to talk about uh, that one just a little bit. Uh, any other thoughts on these characters, though? You mean all of them? Or just just these two in particular. No. I also I'm, hate the Joker. Yeah, I'm I, tired of the, the Joker. Yeah, I... The thing is, like, he's he, there are great Joker performances. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, certainly Jack Nicholson's a riot. Heath Ledger's incredible. Mark Hamill's great. Uh, the, um, Tony Hale, the guy who played Buster in Arrested Development, did a really great Joker imp- uh, performance in Batman Ninja. But um, the character himself, I feel, is like, it's a great way for actors to tee off and have a lot of fun, but there's just not enough there there. Especially when you look at characters like Two-Face, Bane, who's my actual favorite, um, and all these other great characters. Like, uh, he's, he's not even in the top ten for me, as far as Batman villains. I liked the Lego... The Lego, the, the Lego, Lego Joker is great, actually. That's yeah, my I'm favorite. That that's the, ironically, that's the yeah. only version of the Joker I've actually felt like had an yeah. actual personality and a driving motivation. Yeah. He just wanted Batman to acknowledge him. Yeah. And it's almost endearing. Like, so Zach Galifianakis is definitely one, I think, one of the best Jokers yeah. uh, because he really right. sold that. I feel vindicated. You do, it's, uh, yeah. yeah, this is great. Um, that, well movie, like, that movie, uh, is, there are some great parts in there, including a riff on um, Killer Croc that I thought was just great where mm-hmm. there's a, there's, they basically have this whole orchestrated plot and they just need one person who can swim underwater to set a bomb and he just says, I'm helping! Um, 
I, I really, really enjoyed that part. Um, so some, some quick hits before we kind of wrap things up here. Um, I, we see duality as a concept in a lot of villains. Um, so Chuck, you mentioned specifically Wilson Fisk, a.k.a. the mm-hmm. Kingpin, yep. a wealthy philanthropist who's also one of the most powerful crime lords in New York, a man refined, uh, and in some cases maybe even docile in polite society, but mm-hmm. also capable of great anger and violence. Yes. We're talking like table smashing and the whole mm-hmm. thing. Um, what I a, love the Kingpin. He's a great character. Yes, and so like in the... In the spectrum of supervillains, and, and even in superheroes for that matter, I love local stories. Mm-hmm. And so I grew up reading Daredevil, which is a neighborhood story. It doesn't; it's not galactic threat, right? It's mm-hmm. it is your neighborhood. And so the thing I love about the Kingpin so much and villains in those locales is that it feels so much more anchored to good and evil as it exists in our world. But if you're a supervillain in a neighborhood. By default, you can't destroy the neighborhood because then you have nowhere to go, right? <laughs> right? So the plot is never Hell's Kitchen. I will destroy right. it because then you have nothing to rule. He's a businessman, right? He you is. You want to cut off the, just, the money? Just fifty percent to deal right. with the crowding. And, yeah, and <laughs> it doesn't. And it's more than just like those plots where there is only evil when the evil mm-hmm. villain shows up. You well, know, like oh, Thanos is coming. Thanos is here. Thus, evil is here. Yeah. Or high noon. You know, everything's cool now, but at noon, things are going to go really bad. Whereas with Wilson Fisk, when he's not there, there's still bad stuff going on. And when he's there, there's bad stuff going on in other places. But this is why I love the Kingpin. I love the Purple Man as villains because they're more, I think, accurate in what I see in the world and that their goal is to control other people. Yep. And that's what they get pleasure out of. Not destroying things or rearranging things. They see people that are powerless and they want to control them, and that's it. Yep. And that feels real to me. Mm-hmm. Ryan. Yeah, I, I think what you said about Jessica Jones, I feel the same way about that season of um, uh, Daredevil on, on Netflix, which I thought was just a really, really outstanding. But part of what I loved about it is that they dug deep on his life, mm-hmm. on his experiences. Almost to a point where you kind of want him to win. Yeah, I mean, uh, it, <laughs> I certainly understood I felt like I understood yeah. him better than most. Like maybe Daredevil, just get out of his way. Let the yeah. guy have this. And this is a, a thing that I think that the Marvel films and TV shows have been doing better, and that is the digging deep on these. And, and you know, I th- the first time Brian you had us on the show, we talked about Marvel, um, which was more than a year ago. One of the things I said is that I thought Marvel had a villain problem, and mm-hmm. I think they're solving that villain problem. They have at least for the last few years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so for the expression, all politics are local, all villains and heroes are local. Yeah. If I could just change that. Well, and that's the thing. Like, Marvel is defined by that. They're all, like, you know, Daredevil operates around, like, what is Hell's Kitchen's, like, a five-block radius or something yeah. like that? I it's, think it's a strip mall, actually. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> and that's it. Like, it's, it's maybe overcovered, right? Mm-hmm. Luke Cage has Harlem. Spider-Man has Queens yeah. or wherever he ends yeah. up in New York. To the Dairy Queen. Quick. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, we, there's some other stuff I want to get to. I just want to hit some of these other ones. Uh, the idea of toxic masculinity comes up. I've noticed, for example, all these villains, pretty much, except with the exception of Harlem, who's barely even a villain, I would say, nowadays, mm-hmm. um, are men. And uh, the toxic masculinity, I think, you could you draw a line between, um, you know, like characters with, like, narcissism and, like, these kind of, like, delusions of, like, uh, self-aggrandizement uh, uh, and, and that kind of thing. Could you draw that to, like, toxic masculinity, too? With someone like Bullseye, you could, who's another, like, a villain in that universe that I care about. But his sole purpose is to frankly, murder women that Daredevil is in love with. Yeah. Like he, mm-hmm. he is a walking He's personification. Pretty much of, all of them at this yeah, point. all of them. He, yeah. he is 
toxic masculinity writ large mm-hmm. there. Like that mm-hmm. is that is his function. He's hired to do that, and then later he does it on his own accord. That that is the way to hurt someone is not attacking them directly, but attacking female figures in this male person's life mm-hmm. to do that, and it's really troubling. Mm-hmm. Well, Kilgrave is a, mm-hmm. an example of that as well with the, the, the issue. I mean, here's someone who literally controls the people around him in the, in the primary case mm-hmm. of the woman in his life. And What's interesting about that character in the Netflix series is that they spend a couple episodes digging into his backstory. And they, and I think what's masterful about it is that you do start to feel sorry for him. And then the show is quick to remind you that that's how abusers are, is that they will find something, they will hone in and say, I'm in the right, or I was, you know, I was wronged somehow, so therefore what I'm doing isn't so bad. And the show is very, I think, clever to kind of like get you in that mindset and then sort of yank you back saying, he got you, mm-hmm. because that's what happens in these situations. Right. Um, the other things, uh, other things that um, jumped out, like the the villain at, with, as the one sane man that can make the world a better place. Doctor Doom is a great example of that. Mm-hmm. Um, you mentioned Ozymandias, Chuck, yeah, as we were, uh, from Watchmen, uh, and that's a huge spoiler. So I don't want to get too deep into it because it's literally the entire story. Right. Um, but Ozymandias is uh, one of the only successful versions of this character. Um, there's even the classic scene where he's, you know, has this whole speech about like you, you realize I did this 35 minutes ago. Like there's nothing mm-hmm. you can do to stop this now. Um, and then the question becomes is what he did, was it right and was it justified and will it solve the problem that he was trying to solve? Um, you could also argue that uh, Vulture from Spider-Man Homecoming has a point. Mm-hmm. Um, his beef with Tony Stark is legitimate uh, you know, because guys like Tony Stark mm-hmm. really do just kind of make the mess and then get paid to clean it up. Mm-hmm. And he's just trying to be the one that gets paid to clean it up. So do we think we have like a certain degree of uh, sympathy or villains become more interesting if we can see that really they might not be wrong? Uh, in, in how they're approaching these things. At least Vulture's more interesting because he seems like a working class villain until yeah. you actually get to see his house, which is yes. pretty extraordinary. He's um, well beyond working class. <laughs> right. If, if the, that kind of house in New York, is even in the suburbs, no. 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 You, you, that, that is not a house you afford with <laughs> right. honest money. But there, there's something to that. In the, in the beginning part of that film, when they're pushed out of basically labor that you know he says i have people to pay mm-hmm. that we're, we're here working and they're just pushed out that that i don't know that feels different than other scenarios mm-hmm. that i've seen yeah totally agree don't yeah. have anything to add okay. i mean that's cool. yeah so maybe uh, and then maybe that's a good segue to kind of get into something i was also thinking about because you know we, we talk a lot about treatment and punishment and that kind mm-hmm. of stuff when it comes to these issues but i want to talk about the idea of restorative justice uh, justice of, of rehabilitation and that kind of stuff and i think that there are some superhero stories where you see spider-man for example one of the things i love about spider-man as you can tell I like spider-man a lot um is that he takes a personal interest in his villains lives like he talks he tries to talk them out of what they're doing like you know if the shocker is causing a rampage downtown he's trying to yell like hey buddy you know you don't need to do this like your parole like you think about your parole think about your family that kind of stuff right batman does this to an extent with his villains um do you think that maybe there should be more of a focus on rehabilitating the villain um on on a focus on trying to say that people are not necessarily beyond redemption or is that just sort of incompatible with this genre no how's to, that which to which no, part so in the tom <laughs> king batman there's a really if anybody's been reading that there's a really the lesser villains are great for this rather mm-hmm. than the supervillains. And so in the Tom King Batman, there's this great arc about Kite Man, mm-hmm. this guy who dresses up as a kite and kind of floats around and does things, um, not attached to a string necessarily. Um, but he is a villain who is essentially rehabilitated by 
Batman. Mm-hmm. And it's also a, in the Lego story. Batman yes, series, yes. briefly, by yep. the way. Sorry. He was also in the Lego Batman movie, just briefly. I did not know that. It's very brief. I haven't it's seen pre- it. I'm sorry. What? Come on. It's on <laughs> HBO, I think, That's if you want to go watch it when you get home. <laughs> Fine. <laughs> um, but yeah, I would be more interested in that. I, I, there's a... I don't know, there's another character that's just escaping my mind, but it's always a, a minor villain that is... I think it's Dr. Freeze or Mr. Freeze. Mr. Freeze. Mr. So Freeze he, is like one of the ultimate tragic right. villains. Not everyone's a doctor. He doesn't so, have a yeah. PhD. He's, <laughs> he's, he's the one that's not a doctor <laughs> okay, in the Batman right. rogues gallery. Everybody we, else is pretty much. The Joker probably got his PhD in like, I don't know. Chaos parody. theory? Yeah, chaos, like economics yes. or something. Yeah. Thank you. But there's a storyline too with him where he's trying to be reformed. He's sort of on house arrest of sorts that mm-hmm. basically he can't get near cold things or he right. has to, he goes off probation. I don't know. Huh. Um, but it's it's with the lesser villains, but I, I'd be interested in seeing more of it because the Kite Man story arc is amazing. Mm-hmm. Okay. So one thing I want to ask. Uh, you didn't uh, give us an example. This I, is, you, you need to talk about this. We have to talk about rehabilitation. Restore, yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. So I, like, I, I gave you examples. If you could rehabilitate could anyone. Re- oh, like a, like a villain? Yeah. Who's oh, not rehabilitated man. now um, the Joker? Honestly, I, I loved, um, so I'm a Spider-Man guy. Dr. Octopus is one of those villains to me that is, I go. think he's very close to being like, he's another guy that if he got out of his own way mm-hmm. and, he, and he kind of like got taken down a peg and wasn't so sort of self-absorbed, he could do amazing things. And we actually do, he actually takes over and inherits, um, it's, it's a long story, it's comic books. He becomes Spider-Man. He literally takes over Peter Parker's body for a while. And he decides to turn his intellect toward being a better, a superior Spider-Man. Because he also has eight legs. Um, <laughs> Is that, <laughs> is that, am I wrong? I, I don't know that? how to answer that question. Okay, no. d- his suit does have like arms that come out of it, but um, but yeah, and so like, but ultimately he become he learns that you know the reason Spider-Man is the way he is, not, it wasn't because he was stupid or inferior or anything. Like that is that he was literally trying to essentially have the weight of the world on his shoulders, and he was trying to help everybody, and that's never something he had to take into account. But for a while, you're like, hey, he could do something good mm-hmm. if he had that push toward goodness. Um, so he'd be on one of the top guys on my list for sure. And that's another, at least in the movie, the Spider-Man 2, yeah. that's another grief story as well, right? Yeah. I yep. mean, uh, the, he loses everything, it, and that's what pushes yeah. him toward trage- uh, toward villain. He's ultimately very... Tra- and his, his wife dies, right? Yes. Um, his wife dies. His, his life's work goes up in smoke, right. and he blames Spider-Man for it because Spider-Man's trying to stop it from taking out the entire city. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's, he is a character motivated by grief and loss and tragedy. And so, like, and Molina sells it. Like, that's, that's one of my favorite superhero villain performances ever is mm-hmm. Alfred Molina in that movie. Um, the greatest spy, uh, superhero film ever made, just for the record. Other than Incredibles. Uh, well, we could talk about <laughs> too. Um, Other than Lego Batman. <laughs> so uh, why do we keep coming back to these villains? Um, we're so obsessed with them, even outside the superhero realm. I mean, you know, if it comes like Star Wars merchandise, the Empire, the First Order, it's, those are the most popular characters, the most merchandise. We have the 501st Legion walking around. Um, do, you, do you think there's a possible psychological explanation for our fascination with villainy, or is it just as simple as trying to like, live vicariously um, through people that are not operating within the bounds of normal moral society? I think we're invested in the Prometheus myth. Okay. That we're so set on respecting authorities, whether they be gods or institutions, that I think we have an investment in figures that want to lash out and bring those things down and get at least as far as they can to the cusp and then be defeated. We can get enough satisfaction out of that. Reset, start over. Okay, Ryan. No, I think there's something to the vicarious living piece because we are, by and large, talking about people who are 
powerful, people who are, um, and so I think there's something about about that. Like, if I had all of this power, what could I do? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of almost like, but it's it, with the superhero, we definitely have that, the power fantasy. But mm-hmm. with the villain, it's almost the inverse. Like, if I had all this power and no responsibility, if I had right. all this power and no moral obligation to law or to anything else, mm-hmm. what could I do? Isn't that, like, isn't that just like kind of mm-hmm. naughty and, and mm-hmm. mischievous? And, and right. Doesn't it fit an against-all-odds narrative that we appreciate, too, that if you're opposite Superman, you're opposite a god. You have no chance right. at all. So you have to break the rules to, live, to level the playing field, mm-hmm. I guess. Which is why I love Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns so much, mm-hmm. where these heroes pit themselves against essentially a, a living god. Yeah. I'm I'm a big fan. I mean that that part too. But I'm just a big fan of the overwrought noir narration. Mm-hmm. Where he's like talking about the like you know the the rain beating a hymnal on his chest and that kind of stuff. And like you know one of the best lines ever is this isn't a mud pit. It's an operating table. And I'm the surgeon. Mm-hmm. It's Frank Miller's crazy. Like I just want to be very clear on that. He's crazy, but he draws and just writes Batman so beautifully in that series. If you haven't read Dark Knight Returns, it's super good. It's amazing. It's very much from the '80s, but it's so good. I like the 80s. Yeah. Well, it's like, it's like direct references to like Reagan era policies mm-hmm. and stuff like that. Cindy Lauper. Cindy Lauper, I think. Yeah. She's, is she, I think she's in it, isn't she? I have no idea. I don't I remember making that up. She might be. I don't know. You're thinking of Goonies. I am thinking of Goonies, <laughs> I, as I often do. The Karate Kid makes an appearance. Okay. <laughs> Sweep the leg. Okay. Um, so speaking of villains, um, the Cobra Kai, but uh, that's uh, another... That's next year. Let's do that one next year. Um, we're going to open it up. If anybody has any questions or comments or anything they want to respond to, anything they've heard or just anything they want to ask uh, the panel. I mean, you've got uh, a psychologist. You've got, uh, you've got a, a guy. esteemed uh, mm-hmm. a poet, poet and, and uh, chronicler of the human condition. And you've got me, who talks about superheroes a lot professionally. So uh, anything you want to ask or share, would love to hear. Uh, would love to hear from you. Come on up to the microphone. Yes, the good Doctor Strange. Hello. Uh, this has been discussed uh, not t- today, but uh, for for probably for eons. But uh, for the entire Batman family, mm-hmm. uh, almost everybody is some irrational attraction or is insane, mm-hmm. with the exception of Dick Grayson. Mm-hmm. Uh, I I've always thought my my out of everybody in the entire Bat family. Dick Grayson is the most sounded mm-hmm. character. And why is that? He should be the most broken character <laughs> right. of all the things that happened right. to him, including who raised him. Yeah, I mean, like, let's, let's be real. Like, Batman's great at a lot of things. Being a dad is not one of them. Um, <laughs> and one of the things I love about the progression of the Robins is, so he starts off with Dick Grayson. Dick Grayson, of course, his parents were uh, acrobats. They were killed, um, and Batman just takes him in. He's like, I see myself in this kid. But he's like, oh, wait, I don't know anything about raising a kid. And so Dick is relatively well-adjusted for all that. Um, he ends up going off and high doing his own thing, joining the Teen Titans, all that kind of stuff. Um, then he gets Jason Todd, um, who's almost kind of like a mirror of Dick Grayson, but who basically reje- rejects Batman and says, like, you know, he goes off in kind of this, like, violent sort of uh, uh, hysterical end and then gets murdered by the Joker for his efforts, only to come back as another villain that causes all kinds of other problems and blaming Batman for everything bad that happened to him, which he's got a point. Um, And then eventually we get to Tim Drake. I don't really remember much about Tim Drake. And then, of course, we have uh, Damian Wayne, which is Batman's son he didn't know he had. And by that point, he's he's had, like, three or four attempts to try to get this right, and Damian's the first one he actually starts being like, okay, I'm going to be a better dad to this guy. Um, and Damien kind of becomes
becomes a better person because he was raised by assassins. Eventually he becomes, um, you know, he's like, oh, wait, yeah, I can't murder my way out of all the situations because of his dad's influence. But, yeah, it is interesting that you bring that up because if of all the characters who should be defined by and really just, like, one push away from supervillainy, the Robins themselves should be those characters. Um, Dick Grayson probably, like, you could see a couple things going differently and he would become someone like the Joker or someone like that, right? He's got the acrobatic, he's got the circus training for it. Um, I don't know, what do you guys think about about uh, this sort of thing? Not much, other than, so you're saying that Robins are like the drummers in Spinal Tap, that they just <laughs> <laughs> disappear? Yes, that's, and... that's actually a really good uh, okay. analogy. That, um, if you're a Robin, you don't stay in that job long. You either age out of it or die. The red shirt. Yes. Man. <laughs> okay. They literally wear a red shirt, so. I got nothing to add. You got I, nothing to add? I, I, I barely know Robin. Yeah, that's all. a great uh, resilience. We'll um, use that. And so this is where I'm also going to advocate grit. for one of my favorite depictions of Robin ever, and that is in the Teen Titans Go cartoon. If you haven't watched Teen Titans Go, it is one of the best uh, takedowns of the DC universe ever. And in that, Robin's just like this very uh, Type A on edge, obnoxious, kind of like self-absorbed guy because he's constantly trying to live up to Batman and constantly trying to remind everybody that he knows Batman. And uh, it's super funny. They have a lot of fun with that character as a result. So I think it actually is supposed to be the Dick Grayson Robin. So I highly recommend it. Um, it's a kid's show, but uh, I will sit and watch that for hours. That's what I did this morning before I came. <laughs> it's super funny. Um, other questions? Or anybody else want to share something? I got something to say quick. Yeah. Our podcast artist is in the audience. Yeah, Kimberly, Kimberly, would you stand, stand up, stand up for a second? Yeah, if, if we, uh, yeah, all the great podcast art you've seen, um, the the me with my face and that kind of stuff, yep. and the psych and stuff, that's all Kim. All the so rage, psych and stuff, serious so fun, yeah. and it's awesome. I, really I thank her in every episode, but this is the first time she's been at one yeah. that I've done, and so yeah. I'm super Front excited to say that. So thank so, you. Yeah. Uh, well. I think that we might have started to make a small step toward solving the problem of supervillainy. Yes. If nothing else, Agreed. we've accomplished that today at the Brown County Library mm -hmm. Comic Con. Yeah. So uh, thank you all for being here as we try to put these supervillains on the couch. We appreciate you taking time out of your day. We hope you enjoyed it. Um, I am Brian Carr. Ryan Martin, psychology program at UWGB. And Chuck Ryback. Also from UWGB. Yes, I too am from UWGB. I forgot to mention that. <laughs> uh, so we want to thank you all. Uh, this has been serious fun. This has been psych and stuff. And this has been uh, a great day here at the Brown County Library Comic Con. So thanks to everybody at the library for putting this on. Wonderful. We're, we're so thrilled and so honored that you had us here. And uh, we hope you had a great time. So we'll see you next time. Nice job. And that does it for this episode. Special thanks to Chuck Ryback and Brian Carr, hosts of Serious Fun. I also want to thank our producer, Kate Farley, our podcast artist, Kimberly Vlees, and our fabulous intern, Shayla Warren, who's pretty rad. That's it. Make sure to join us next time when we talk scary movies live from the Widener Center. Until then, keep being amazing.